There was a man who was in England who put his Rolls Royce on a boat and went across the continent to go on holiday. That's vacation for those of us in the US. While he was driving around Europe, something happened to the motor of his Rolls Royce. He cabled the Rolls Royce people back in England and asked, I'm having trouble with my car. What do you suggest that I do? Well, the Rolls Royce people flew a mechanic over to where he was. The mechanic repaired the car and flew back to England and left the man to continue on his holiday. As you can imagine, the fellow was wondering, how much is all of this going to cost me? So when he got back to England, he wrote the people a letter and asked how much he owed them. He received a letter back from the office of Rolls-Royce that said this, Dear sir, there is no record anywhere in any of our files that anything ever went wrong with Rolls-Royce. That is what justification is like. That is what it's like when you're found in Christ and God looks at you. Good morning, and thank you for joining us as we continue our series on Colossians called Why Do We Do What We Do? as we are attempting to look at the heart behind the writing of Colossians and the context in which Paul is addressing. Last week, Pastor Mike did a great job of unpacking syncretism and how many attempt to add and blend other religions into the Christian faith, which either waters down the gospel or contradicts it completely. As I'm sure many of you this week probably have thought about how wonderful a milkshake with motor oil and meat seasoning smell and what it would taste like, I'm sure that that analogy stuck with you. Today, as we study Colossians, Paul's going to continue this thought and how vital the gospel is, but he's going to attack head on what many of us know as legalism. Legalism is a term that I think many of us think other people are, but rarely do we see it in ourselves. Not only that, but we often celebrate our prodigal tendencies while ignoring our older brother attitudes. So today we're going to cover Paul hitting head on what many of us struggle with. And let's be real, this is going to probably hurt a little bit, but sanctification always does. Let me begin with a definition. I think we all need to know as we begin this passage that this definition is not found in the Bible as we talk about legalism as much as it is a commentary on how we justify ourselves through means that are not Christ. Here it is. Legalism is justifying oneself through means other than Jesus Christ. And justification can mean not just salvation, but security as well. So legalism bleeds into the theory that we must abstain in order to remain. Here's what I mean. If Jesus Christ is Lord of our lives, we will be changed. We will grow. We will learn from our mistakes but we will not be perfect or sinless in this life. So legalism creates this holier-than-thou attitude that says that unless you are keeping the law perfectly, even though justified by Jesus, you then will have to be perfect in order to be seen as perfect by God. But the good news was not that we were saved to then secure ourselves in eternity, but we were saved and secured by Jesus for eternity. So let's see what Paul says to those in Colossae. Starting in verse 16, Paul writes this. He says, therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration or a Sabbath day. What Paul has addressed in this last passage regarding circumcision, Paul will now extend to eating and the way that we spend our days. 
Paul says, therefore, which is transitioning from the passage we studied last week. And he says, do not let anyone judge you. Here's the thing with that statement, though. We become the elder brother instantly by our response to that statement. We don't think anyone else should judge us, and we don't listen to what is actually said as Paul writes this. A lot of people like to say, only God can judge me. And at least in my smart aleck response internally is, he will. And I really hope when he looks at you or he looks at me, that he sees Jesus. Because based on what I do, based on what I think and want and pursue, I have no shot at the kingdom of heaven based on my own merit. But what is Paul communicating? Don't let anyone judge you. Don't let anyone base their understanding of your identity with Christ on how moral or religious you are. To judge here means to hold one guilty of a crime. And Paul is saying that it is not in the power of man to attempt to get people to be justified by things that aren't Christ's death and resurrection. So why does Paul say eating, drinking, festivals, and the Sabbath? Because these were some of the ways that religious people were attempting to invalidate Christians and their standing in Christ because of their lack of keeping the religious traditions. Church, this is one of the things that I think I may personally have a chip on my shoulder regarding. I hate, hate, hate when people attempt to make the gospel about keeping rules, both justification and our security. Now, is there evidence of one's salvation through continued obedience? Absolutely, 100% positively. But when we attempt to invalidate the power of the cross and empty not only the cross, but also the empty tomb because of people's actions, we proclaim a false gospel. So what are we attempting to add to the gospel of grace when we judge others based on their human tendencies? I can hear some of you in my mind right now going, yeah, get them. Get those religious Pharisees who don't like to have fun and want to ruin everyone else's fun. Just you wait. I'll get to you. Or really, Paul will. As he says in Romans 6, should I continue to sin so that grace may increase? By no means. But understand this, that I am yet to know someone who gets all bent out of shape because they feel judged, who then point their justification to Jesus. They point their justification to being found in Christ. See, they'll point to their morals or they compare themselves to someone who's worse than them, but they totally forget that their justification and their right standing are in grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. So we, or I, attempt to find actions and experiences that show off just how saved I am. Years ago, Aaron, my wife and I, before we had kids, went to Disneyland with some of our friends and their kids. And these friends were from a far off land known as Hades or really Patterson. And we went to church with these people for a few years and little did we know that it was a self-justifying cult that thinks that the gospel is about abstaining from things rather than being a made alive in Christ. Not that I have opinions about them. We were waiting in line for star tours, actually, and something had come up about uh, performing people's weddings and marrying those people. And back then, I had not married anyone, primarily because I wasn't in a good place spiritually. So when I had been asked to marry other people, even though I had been in ministry, the few couples that had asked me to do it, I had declined. And the youth pastor's wife, who was in line with us, heard this, and she literally said this, You know, my husband should have married those people. He's definitely more ordained than you are. Now, other than that, knowing that that doesn't make any sense, she showed her cards when she wanted to justify her husband's spiritual ability based on what he could do 
or how knowledgeable he is or how pure he is or through some other external reason. Now, I throw some shade on her, not because I know she wouldn't listen to the sermon because the gospel of grace offends her, but as a satire on how many people view Christian hierarchy and justification. We justify ourselves because we, are, we think we are better than someone else in our subjective minds without knowing anything about that other person, while hiding or being dishonest about how immoral we are ourselves. Now, I don't say all of that to hurt your feelings or even sound negative, but to exalt and explain how Jesus and his grace are the point and we're in need of it. So let's continue. Verse 17. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. A shadow of things to come, Paul says. The reason Paul points out that adherence to the law or religious activity that was once expected was a shadow of Christ, and to judge someone based on a shadow was evidence that you didn't see the whole man or see them for who they were in Christ. That's why Paul says the reality is found in Christ. Possibly the more important phrase in Colossians is this term in Christ that we have seen so many times as we've been studying the book of Colossians. When studying the Bible, I always want to point out things that there's a pattern of that we see multiple times in Scripture. And so we hear this in Christ over and over. Let me show you a few as we've studied the book of Colossians. In verse 4 of chapter 1, because we have heard of your faith in Christ and the love you have for all of God's people. Paul's speaking about those in Colossae. Then in 1.16, for in him all things were created, him being Jesus. In verse 17 of chapter 1, he is before all things and in him all things are held together. Chapter 1, verse 19, for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. Chapter 2, verse 3, in him, being Jesus, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Chapter 2, verse 6, so then, just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him. Chapter 2, verse 7, rooted and built up in him. Verse 9 of chapter 2, for in Christ, all the fullness of deity lives in the bodily form, in Christ. And in Christ, verse 10, you have been brought brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. Verse 11, in him you were also circumcised with the circumcision not performed by human hands. Verse 12, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through your faith and working of God who raised him from the dead. Verse 17, these are the shadow of things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. And that's just so far in this beautiful book. But the term in Christ tends to mean that our spiritual reality is now hidden with Christ. We're superimposed by Christ. More about that in a moment. See, we no longer live, but Christ lives in us. As Paul says in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life that I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Our identity is covered in the supremacy of Christ. So our identity, our being, our purpose should all be rooted, established, and found in Christ. That is what the Christian does. That is what the Holy Spirit produces in us, not automatically or even overnight, but progressively. Christ isn't all that we want until we realize that Christ is all that we need. And when we're found in him, we see this. Verse 18. 
Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. Such a person also goes into great detail about what they have seen. They are puffed up with idle notions by their unspiritual minds. I had to read this verse over and over again. And as I studied it, there was something in me that wanted to read this out of context in which it was written to just focus on angel worship or false humility. But what Paul is addressing is that those who wanted to judge Christians by their keeping of the law rather than being rooted in Christ should be ignored. They should be discounted. Paul uses this term disqualify. It's a term that had to do in this context with wrestling or in a running race. It was to compete in an event, to not be disqualified. And the false humility that comes with worship of something other than Christ is evident. We've heard people say, you've maybe even said at some point, I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. And really what we mean is I worship what I own. I don't worship who owns me. And this false notion that worshiping angels is pleasing to God is evidence of our lack of knowing what God says about himself and the word. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 4, the writer of Hebrews puts it this way, So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. And our misguided worship is one of the telltale signs that we are not led by the Spirit of God because the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, unashamedly points us to worship the Son. The Holy Spirit exalts Jesus and unveils our eyes to the beauty and majesty that is found in the fullness of God indwelled in the Son. These puffed up, misguided worshipers with their false humility become spiritual referees to attempt to condemn people who don't live up to their personal expectations. We tend to call these people Pharisees, if you read through the Gospels, and Jesus was overtly harsh with them. If you look in Matthew chapter 23, he said it this way, starting in verse 27, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside, you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Now, I don't think our application, you and I, our application is to just call out people that are legalistic because Jesus was also very, very patient with these people. But I think he spoke this truth to them because their hearts were so hard that it was proof that they couldn't hear any truth no matter what. But here's what I see with self-justifiers or legalists. They can't and don't point to Christ as their justification. That is just a very obvious, evident thing. They'll fight tooth and nail to attempt to justify by their actions or by other ways of puffing themselves up. But, but don't, if you're having a conversation with them, don't get caught up in that. Point to Christ. Boast in your weakness, which reminds us and others of our need and our dependence upon Jesus. Verse 19, they have lost connection with the head. From, the, from whom the whole body supported and held together by its ligaments, sinews grows as God causes it to grow. They being the spiritual referees, these pharisaical legalists have lost touch with the head, which is Christ. Legalism and moral-based gospel always stiff-arm Jesus. Because Jesus didn't come to make us better. He came to make us alive. And that is the essence of being found in Christ. 
And it is from this head, being Jesus, that all things are connected as the church body. We are reliant upon the head. And when we are not reliant and dependent upon Jesus, we are disconnected from the church. While evidence of being part of God's church is the fact that he causes us to grow together. Our growth, specifically in the fruit of the Spirit, is not because we willed it or we tried harder or we even nailed our spiritual disciplines one week. As we have talked before, it's because Christ is at the center of our lives as the head of the church, and he causes us to grow through obedience to him. In Titus chapter 3, verses 4 and 5, we studied this a few months back, but Paul writes this, But when the kindness and love of our God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us. Not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. So when these legalists want to add to the gospel of grace, they show off their lack of understanding of grace and their emphasis of something that seemed right to man, but was off according to God's very word. Verse 20, since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world, why, as though you still belong to the world, do you submit to these rules? Our identifying and being defined by Christ includes being put to death with Christ and our sin hanging on that cross and our personhood being hidden or superimposed or photoshopped with Christ's face over ours. God sees his son, church, when he looks at you and I, if we are found in Christ, even when we sin. Does that blow your mind? It ought to, but many of us don't believe this. Because we treat Christ as if he just came to make us over rather than to take us over. So our dying with Christ means that we no longer live for the law. We are dead to it. We are made alive with Christ through both his death and his resurrection. Verse 21 and 22. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These rules, which have to do with things that are destined to perish with use, are based on merely human commands and teachings. The Colossians were buying into human teaching of abstaining from things. These were additives to their faith rather than a biblical truth handed down by the Holy Spirit. And a case can be made that the first sin in all of history was legalism in the sense that we want to add our personal opinion to what God has said. Let me show you. Genesis chapter 2. Here is God speaking to Adam in the garden. And he says in verse 15, The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Now let's skip to chapter three, where the fall of man takes place. Eve has been made out of Adam's rib. She is having a conversation with the the slitherly serpent, Satan. Now the serpent verse one, was craftier than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat from the fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. Um, where did she get? God said, don't touch it. Well, the assumption is that Adam added that because Eve wasn't there and he assumed that if he told her not to touch it, she couldn't eat from it. Good thinking. But sin entered into the fray and the argument could be made that the first sin wasn't just disobeying, but misrepresenting what God had to say in the first place. 
And we as a church, we as people who follow Jesus, we fall into this all the time. We put man-made traditions on par with what God says. I need to take a, a, a break from teaching. I need to confess some stuff right now. And this isn't going to be popular, but I need to say it. And, and we'll see if I even let Keith keep it in. He might edit it out, but we'll see. Okay, this pandemic, it sucks. Like, it sucks because over 200,000 people have died in America and over a million in the entire world. Many of those souls being people who did not know Christ. And if you don't know, myself, I'm personally, I would consider myself somewhat careful. Not just for me, I'm in pretty good shape, even though that doesn't guarantee anything when it comes to COVID. And even though I may possibly had COVID earlier on in the year when I was very sick and a few of my family members got sick and we didn't really know why we were all so sick, that also doesn't guarantee that we can't get it. And even though I usually wear a mask and we haven't let anyone in our house who wasn't in our bubble without a mask, that doesn't guarantee anything either. It was once said that there are no guarantees in life but death and taxes, but there is a guarantee that we are made righteous in Christ if we trust him for our salvation and security. So I just need, as as your pastor, and for most of you, hopefully you would consider me your friend, I, I just, I need to ask you to care for others in this season. I know we have fatigue. I know many of us feel isolated, but I worry that so many of us are going to let our guards down and act as if what we do doesn't matter, even though it may affect the people around us that we care most about. Being careful is not a political statement, even though that is a lie from the pit of hell being propagated all over the world. But being careful gives us the opportunity to be Christ to other people to point them to a savior who is bigger than COVID, but has given us logic and opportunity to actually love others more than we love ourselves by being careful for the high risk and by being a witness that can even, that even when we are inconvenienced, we still trust Christ more than we trust our ability to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. Now, I may offend some of you because my stance is to actually listen to what scientists and doctors believe about the virus, but I don't care at this point because I feel like people think that others are afraid when they aren't careful. And you want to know what I'm afraid of? Not being there when my fifth baby is born because of infection. I'm afraid of getting a call from one of you that I love very much that you are very sick and need hospitalization, but you cannot get any treatment because the hospital beds are full. I'm afraid that we're gonna miss the gospel for the assumption that if we are religious enough or political enough or loud enough that we deserve anything but death, yet God in his mercy offers us a new life found in the person and work of Jesus Christ and nothing, not death, nor disease, nor political affiliation, nor loss of convenience, nor loss of pride will keep us from God's forgiveness when it comes to the finished work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. So if you haven't been careful, would you quarantine? If you've been sinful, would you repent? And if you care for others, would you at least care for them as much as you care for yourself? That's not a popular statement in some faith-based arenas. But it's, I think it's a better call than acting as if we're impervious to peril 
especially when your actions can harm other people so directly. Let's keep going. Verse 23. Such regulations, Paul says, indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. Paul writes as we conclude today that living by such human regulations has an appearance of wisdom. You may look wise in human eyes and don't have the effect that God desires for his people. That's not what this has, nor what the Spirit of God does in his people. Paul addresses self-imposed worship, or in some translations, self-invented worship, worship of something other than Jesus. The Colossians had been misled to believe that Jesus was just an angel, and angels could and should be worshipped. But according to this heresy, that had been something that had been taught to many people in Colossae, but we don't see it in Scripture. And as we have said countless times, many worship creation rather than the creator. And that is why Paul lays out very, very plainly how supreme Jesus is, that he is the creator and sustainer of all things, which is also confirmed not just in Colossians chapter one, but in the book of Hebrews in chapter one, where it starts off in the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by a son whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom all he made the, whom also he made the universe. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. So with that as our foundation, we ought to know that worshiping anything less than Christ is misled worship. It's idolatry. It's self-invented worship of creation rather than the creator. Paul also, for the second time, points out this false humility in these spiritual referees that attempt to be pious and religious, but are legalistic and fundamental in their interpretation and understanding. I believe this is probably the biggest imposter syndrome of any legalist pretending to be a believer and worshiper of the Lord Jesus Christ. They hear that the humility is a mark of a Christian, so they come up with ways of bringing attention to themselves to highlight their false humility. Now, I want to be real. I struggle so much with not thinking more highly of myself than I ought, and really not just thinking about myself all the time. When I became a Christian, I didn't become humble, but over time, God through circumstance, has been and I hope will be humbling me and conforming me more into his image. I know a lot of people right now, they're in a hard season of humility where we expect to be farther along than we are. We expect to get this job or that job. We expect this person to like us or to invite us to something. We expect people to bide for our attention and maybe that's just not happening. And our defense mechanism is to wonder and even possibly complain about what's wrong with them rather than looking at ourselves, rather than possibly self-assessing where we may not measure up. It's easier to assume that everyone else is off to save our pride. And false humility is a placebo version of God's growth in our lives because he isn't the one causing this. We are. To look a certain way, to have people believe certain false things about us, That is why everything is so much more complete in the gospel. The gospel means that this life isn't about us. 
from our finances to our hobbies, from our 401k to our real estate portfolio, our accumulation of stuff to our sense of humor, all of our being, all of our accomplishments are attributed to and because of our God who in heaven willed us to have blessings and allowed for trials that we experience to shape, mold, and move us to look more like God's only son, Jesus. So in the gospel, We don't need to find our worth in what other people think of us. We don't need to pretend to be humble. We don't need to to pretend at all. The antidote to false humility is to be genuine and secure enough in your identity in Christ that vulnerability is no longer a bad word. This is where the Christian community ought to be different. But most of us still have so much pride that being vulnerable is too risky. Because what if people knew the real us? What if people knew that we didn't have it all together? What if people didn't like us? Well, it all depends on how you view the gospel. Let me show you how Tim Keller puts it. The gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dare hoped. And this is why legalism and the gospel are polar opposites. They're polar opposite ends of the religious spectrum. Because the former makes us the hero when we attain enough morality. And the latter always points to the hero of Jesus Christ who died and rose again so that we could have life and life to the fullest. There was a show called The Merv Griffin Show. Some of you might have remembered the show. Some of you might have seen it on Nick at Night. I'm not sure. But there was a guest on the Merv Griffin show who was a bodybuilder. And during an interview, Merv asked the bodybuilder, why do you develop those particular muscles? The bodybuilder simply stepped forward and flexed a series of well-defined muscles from the chest to the calf. The audience applauded. What do you use all those muscles for? Merv asked again. The muscular specimen flexed, biceps and triceps sprouted. All his muscles started to sprout to impressive proportions. But what do you use those muscles for, Merv persisted. The bodybuilder was bewildered. He didn't really know how to respond. He didn't have an answer other than to display his well-developed frame. And our spiritual exercises, our Bible study, our prayer, our reading of of Christian theology books and listening to Christian sermons and podcasts are also for a purpose. They're meant to strengthen our ability to build God's kingdom, not simply to improve our pose before an admiring audience. So let's look at the end of verse 23 one more time. And their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. Paul addresses the harsh treatment of the body. A historical spiritual wives' tale is that if you hurt yourself or starve yourself, that that is an act of worship to God. And by the pain you're willing to cause yourself and endure, you are proving your love and devotion to God. See, religion causes guilt and shame, but the gospel causes us to live in truth and grace. And no amount of abstaining from something or beating yourself will ever justify or accomplish or earn your right standing with God. It is only by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, that we stand innocent before God. And as Paul says, it lacks any value in restraining sensual indulgences. Man's problem since the garden is to attempt to run from God and comb over the real problem of sin 
that is in our hearts. We do not attempt to put lipstick on a pig or shine up a corpse. We cannot attempt to cut off the top of the weeds, but the root issue attempting to justify ourselves by any and everything but Jesus Christ, we must repent of. That must change. So instead of being vulnerable and real with God, admitting and repenting of our sinful nature and our wicked heart, we attempt to look a certain way to other people, hoping that other people's acceptance of our religious work will justify us in front of a holy and perfect God. Church, I love all of you, but I only know the version of you that you let me see. More importantly, God loves you and knows the version that none of us see. He loves you and sent his son to justify you and gave you the faith to believe him in the first place. As Pastor Mike said last week, we have the ultimate ride-along with our God who did for us what we could not do for ourselves. So how could we not praise him and thank him and turn to him and love him back by trusting what he says and putting into practice his commands? In the, the hills and the highlands of Scotland, a sheep would often wander off into the rocks and get into places that they couldn't get out of. I'm a sheep. The grass on these mountains is very sweet and the sheep really like it. And they will jump down 10 or 12 feet and then they can't get back up to where they were. And the shepherd hears them moaning in distress when they go down this cliff about 10 feet. And then they'll be there for days until they have eaten all the grass. And the shepherd will wait until they are so faint they cannot stand. And then he'll put a rope around them. And he will go over and he'll pull that sheep out of the jaws of death. You might ask, why, why don't you go down there when the sheep first get there? Uh, well, they are very foolish. These sheep are very dumb. And that if the shepherd rushed down there to try to get them out of it right away, these sheep would dash over the precipice and be killed as soon as they did. And that is the way with men. They won't go back to God until they have no friends and have lost everything. If you are a wanderer, I tell you that the good shepherd will bring you back the moment you have given up trying to save yourself and are willing to let you save, willing to let him save you his own way. For some of us, we need to let go of our agenda. We need to put down our pride. We need to stop thinking that if we are good enough, if we are smart enough and doggone it, we think we can justify ourselves amongst other people, then we've arrived. The cross says that we are loved more than we can ever imagine, and the resurrection cements the fact that we too have a new life in Jesus Christ. So church, if there's any hint of you attempting to add to the gospel, if there is any small part of you that still is attempting to earn what was freely given, if you are trying to make yourself look good for spiritual referees while internally you are broken and knowing that you are faking it, I have two things to say to you. Like Bob Newhart says, Stop it! And second, repent. Change direction. Stop doing what you were once doing. Turn from the way, that way of thinking. Don't look back. And you know what God will do? He'll humble you. He'll change you. He'll grow you to look more like his son. And it won't be easy. There's no promise of that. It probably will hurt. 
but it will be transformative and you will praise God for the difference that letting go of your attempting to earn what is freely given will do for you. There is no amount of abstaining or earning or doing that will ever make you justified or good enough or innocent. But all three of those things are available in the person and work of Jesus Christ if you'd humble yourself and by grace alone, through faith alone, be found in Christ alone. All right, that's my sermon. And it's my birthday this Sunday, the day that you're probably watching the sermon. And this isn't just any birthday. It's my 40th birthday, which some of you are thinking, ah, but a pup. And some of you are going, wow, Grandpa, you need a cane? Well, no, I ran 40 miles this week. How much did you run, punk? Sorry. But here's what I would love for my birthday. From those of you who are part of COV, I'd just love to have you join us on the Zoom takeaway call this week. I'm not even asking you to be on the call the entire time. Maybe you don't have a takeaway or maybe you're not really comfortable sharing it. Maybe you didn't finish the sermon, even though you probably wouldn't be hearing me say this right now if you haven't. But I'd love to see your face. I've asked Gabriel, one of our worship leaders, to lead us in a time of worship, just one song, that I'd like you to come on the call and see your face and give us the opportunity to worship together because we're not getting to do that as much right now. But at least we can use this opportunity to worship together where we can see each other's faces. Everyone will be on mute. Don't worry about it. Gabe won't, so we can actually hear him leading us. But man, my soul just wants to see you. So if you're on the call every week, please join us. If you haven't been on the call for months, would you join us? If you don't know what Zoom is, you probably wouldn't be able to watch the sermon either. So, but you can join us too. <laughs> but come say hi. Worship Jesus with us. And I'll give it time for people to jump off of the call. And those who stick around, I'll, I'll do a takeaway time with everyone who's still on the call. But come on, I'm entering middle age. Join me and pay your condolences. And with that, I just want to remind you that we as a community of COVers, we have the opportunity to worship together through giving and offerings to our Lord. So if you have come prepared to give, I'd encourage you to go online and use different methods of giving on the covalley.com website, or you can mail a check to the church campus. The address should be on the screen. But let me pray for us. Would you just take a moment and be still with me? Father, thank you for your goodness. Thank you that as we shelter in place, at least this week, and we're not meeting in person, God, that you are still king above everything. And it's inconvenient, it's frustrating. For some of us, it's isolating. God, I pray that you not only would be enough, but that you would, through whatever means you choose, through encouragement of a text or a friend calling or hanging out outside or whatever, God, I pray that you would allow people to feel your love through your people, through your word, through your spirit. God, thank you that we can gather this way. Thank you for the technology that gives us the opportunity to have a playlist every week. Pray that you keep people safe, that God, you would give us wisdom. And Lord, would you use this offering, no matter how big, no matter how small, would you use it to make disciples of all nations and generations? Would men, women, and children fall in love with you and look more like you because of the work of your people at COV? We thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Love you guys.